It is hard to argue against the idea that the world is built upon connection. From the tiniest atoms to nature and even technology, everything in our world depends on its relationship to others. Studies into human relationships tell the incredible story of the power of connection. Positive, healthy human relationships are linked to better mental and physical health outcomes. In today's busy world, we are asked to connect to others on a regular basis. And yet, there is often little understanding of the vast impacts our interactions have. Welcome to Season 2 of NFCC's Guide Through the Seasons of Mental Wellness, where we dive into some of the most common, as well as a few overlooked, relationships we experience in a lifetime. I am your host, Tracy Lehman, and I am honored to be a part of your day. Let's get into today's episode. Attachment theory is widely accepted across the mental health world as a key lens for understanding the relationships and their complexities. Attachment is the idea that we learn how to be in the world through our relationships with primary figures like parents, siblings, and teachers. While we learn attachment style throughout major relationship shifts, it all starts with the parent figures. How parents respond to their child lets them know how to navigate their surroundings and the people in them safely. For some, the parent-child relationship can serve as an obstacle in the way of learning what it is to develop healthy relationships because our own hurts from our family relationships are carried into our parenting. On top of that, we are bombarded with a million and one ideas of what a family should look like without much consideration for each individual's different needs and unique temperaments. So how can we be authentic in our roles as parents? What makes and breaks these different types of relationships? And how do we create a feeling of safety, acceptance, and growth in our children? Here to discuss this and much more is Danielle Coleman. Danielle is a certified child life specialist at the Wonders and Worries Houston office. She has over seven years of experience supporting children and families at Wonders and Worries in Texas Children's Hospital in the outpatient hematology oncology clinic. She holds a bachelor's degree in psychology from Texas A&M University and a master of science in human development and family studies from Texas State University. Danielle and her husband have two beautiful children, and their family can often be found enjoying the outdoors at the park or riding bikes. Welcome to the podcast, Danielle. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be a part of this. Yeah. So, okay, so let's get this out of the way first. You were invited on the podcast because of the wonderful work that you do, but I've heard that you have a pretty fascinating story about becoming a parent. Can you share that with us? It is quite a fascinating story, and I would love to say that it's a unique story, but oftentimes when I talk about it, I hear that it happens pretty often, but we have two beautiful children, as you kind of already said. We have a three-year-old and two-year-old that are eight months apart in age, and oftentimes when I tell people that, either they calculate it out and they're like, wait a minute, they can't be biological. So my daughter is adopted, and my son is biological, and so we were told when my husband and I first started to have children, we had a 1% chance of ever getting pregnant and having a child of our wow. own. And, and, and so we, and I always, adoption was always on my radar, not necessarily my husband's. It took a little bit of convincing and talking it through with him, but he's it's the best decision we've ever made. And he also agrees to that. But so we went to Ireland with the adoption process already started and came back and realized that we had matched with our daughter and had one month to get ready for her. And in that time of one month scrambling to get ready for her, I missed my period. And my husband's like, we should take a pregnancy test. And I was like, I'm not pregnant. I'm not. <laughs> and he was, and so I take the pregnancy test like one week before our daughter is born. And I was like, oh my God, what do we do? Because <laughs> I'm pregnant. And my first bout of morning sickness was in the hospital with her. Oh my gosh. But oh my gosh. it's been a whirlwind, but an amazing whirlwind since then. That's so awesome. <laughs> How is that raising two kids in the same age? I hear that. I've heard different things. I've heard some people say, it's hard in the beginning, but then they kind of entertain each other. So it takes the pressure off. And then I've heard people say, no, it's really hard. <laughs> <laughs> I 
I will say it was really hard the first two years, just both being in diapers, both just being very in that stage of just constantly needing somebody. But as they've gotten older, it's been wonderful to watch them play and develop this language that I, in this rhythm with each other that sometimes I don't fit into because they have this connection that I'm not a part of. And that's okay. Mm-hmm. Right. I think goals mm-hmm. as parents is that we want our children to our siblings to love each other and be a part of each other's world. And so it's been amazing to watch them grow and be together and see what relationship they have yeah. for sure. Yeah. Speaking of relationships, since that's what we're talking about today, how yeah. have you managed? Cause something that's always occurred to me, like when people have twins and triplets and you know, everyone's relationship is different, but when you have your first child, right, you get to really spend time forming that bond, that relationship. But when there's two at the same time or one baby and one in growing inside you, causing you to be sick and tired, how do you feel like you were able to manage and navigate that relationship? It was definitely probably the, the most difficult time in my life and with my husband as well. And it took a village. It took my mom and my sister being very present and very involved. And I could not have done it without a support system, 100%. But yes, the the bonding with my daughter was easy. Like she was just a happy baby, easygoing baby, went everywhere with us. And I very much followed attachment theory parenting where like both my kids were, I wore them Mm -hmm. all the time and Mm -hmm. we did not cry it out for, for sleep methods. Like it would be very much followed that bonding parenting for both of them. But when my son entered the picture, life definitely got a little bit more complicated. My daughter wasn't crawling yet. She was just still just learning to sit up pretty much. And so this dynamic of, okay, I wear him, I carry her and how do I nurse him? But at the same time, she needs a bottle. So yeah, being pulled in many directions and always wanting to meet their needs and make sure they feel loved and secured and safe and, and, you know, and sometimes being by myself. And so that's where that village came in of my mom really helping out and meeting those needs where I couldn't meet them just to make sure they always felt secure and loved. And of course, my husband, when he wasn't working, was there and involved as much as he could too. But yeah. It was, it was definitely challenging times. My daughter had just started sleeping with the night when my son was born. So we always joke that we got like no sleep for like the first two years. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Wow. No, I love that you mentioned village. We're going to talk about villages later because I agree that villages are so important. And I feel like there's so much Mm -hmm. pressure on us as parents to like do it yourself, do it all yourself. You know, we can have it all, but it's hard without we have village. pulled away from the village too much in our society in my opinion yeah I 100% agree I say that all the time okay well I want to dive in um, and we'll come back to the village but I want to dive in about your work at wonders and worries because you help children through some really difficult times and you help parents navigate these times with your children so what exactly is a child life specialist and how did you become interested in this so we actually get that question quite a bit as what is a child life specialist? It's a very small, unique niche of a field. So child life specialists have a have to have a minimum of a bachelor's degree in psychology, child development, sociology, and you have to family child development. And what we typically do is we are in hospital settings, pediatric hospital settings, and we provide preparation and support and teach coping skills to children that have either acute or chronic conditions. So we can be in this, the surgery, outpatient surgery area, providing preparation support for surgery, or we can, my opportunity was in the outpatient hematology oncology, where it was more of a chronic condition. We provide lots of play opportunities because we know children learn best through play and they get a sense of mastery through play. Child life specialists also pull from a lot of different theorists and modalities. We pull from Erickson, PJ, Maslow's hierarchy of needs to guide our practice. Mm -hmm. And so that's how we provide services in the hospital. But here at Wonders and Worries, Meredith, our co-founder, has had an amazing vision where we pull child life outside the hospital and we support children that have a parent with a serious illness. And so we provide, again, all those same things of preparation and support and teaching coping skills, but how having a parent with a serious illness affects them, right? Change in routine, those feelings around having a parent with a serious illness and identifying those different things. And in the hospital setting, our services are free of charge. And here at Wonders and Maurice, Meredith also wanted to continue that. So our services are also free of charge. And so we provide like a six-week curriculum where we and implement all those different things I talked about. Yeah, fantastic. That's such an amazing thing. I actually was reading about it 
and doing a little research. And the six week program was really neat to me because it looked like it was, it's designed like per type of illness. Is that right? Like category of illness. So the, yes. So we, we often adapt what we're doing to meet the child's needs. Right. And one of those is the parent's illness. And so session two, we do a diagnosis education, which we would do also in the hospital setting. And we always make it kid friendly and we always make it play-based. And so if it is a cancer diagnosis, we can do that by making blood soup, which I know sounds so gross, <laughs> but it's so fun because it's candy, right? So you can use red hots as the red blood cells. You can marshmallows as the white blood cells and Skittles as the platelets, right? And then you can introduce cancer cells, introduce chemo and the side effects of chemo and how the doctors are working hard to help their mom and dad's bodies be safe and healthy again. And so using all those different things that hand on tangible things to meet all different learning styles to make sure that you're teaching them and having answering questions instead of providing more questions. Wow. That's amazing. Yes. So I've been trying to decide where to go with this conversation, and I thought, let's just get really vulnerable here. So we're both mothers of young children, as we've always already discussed. Mine are three and six, both going on 13, as girls do. They are sassafrases. But one thing that I've discovered as I've walked alongside my kids through their stages of growth is that parenting is really humbling. Even with the therapeutic knowledge that I use to support my clients, when I apply it to my own parenting, I feel like I still have the same struggles as everyone else. So I kind of think of it like another job. I mean, it is another job being a parent, but like it's constant, like your child, you're being promoted and having to readjust to new expectations that your children, you know, the promotion is your child getting to a new stage of life and then having to readjust and figure out what the requirements are and figure out how to work with your team members over and over again. And for sure, my own experience as a parent have changed how I approach parenting subjects with clients in session. Has having kids changed the way that you serve your families because of your experience as a parent? 100%. (laughs) And I didn't think it would, right? I mean, coming from a single married person, I thought, oh, this isn't going to affect me, but it has affected me quite greatly. First and foremost is giving me greater empathy and understanding for parents and for the clients that we we serve, right? More grace and forgiveness for the parents and for myself. But most importantly, when you're in school and you're in your training and you hear this all the time that like parents know their children best, it's true. Mm-hmm. Parents know mm-hmm. their children best. They know their natural tendencies and their natural coping behaviors, right? And so since I've been a parent, pulling in parents more into the conversation of this is the coping skill that we're trying to reinforce and trying to teach because they can reinforce it at home and because they can reiterate it, but also they can say like, you know what, that's not my kid's natural modality of learning and and doing things. Like, I don't know if that coping skill will work for them. Can we try something else? 100%, you know them best. And so pulling in parents more often into the conversation has definitely been more of what has impacted me since being a parent. Yeah, I agree. That's kind of how mine was too, because in the beginning, you're telling them all these theories and all that kind of stuff. And you feel like I've got this, but yeah, it's totally adaptable. I feel like when parents say that's not going to work for me, or like, I'm really nervous because I don't know how to function without putting my child in front of a screen or whatever it is, right? Because there's all these rigid rules we get from these theories. And I'm just like, okay, well, what's the flexible thing to do here? And what works for you? Because a healthy parent makes a healthy child. And if you're going crazy trying to entertain your child while trying to get things done around the house because you're avoiding screens, it's not going to be, it's not going to help. It's not going to work, right? Yeah. It's going to, their bucket's going to be empty. We have to fill the parent's bucket up. Yeah. Yeah. So I like that, that flexible approach. I do the same thing. So something I mentioned when I was introducing this topic was that we bring our own family history into our parenting life as well. One of the greatest things I've learned in developing awareness, so I'm a big proponent of mindfulness and just kind of trying to have that observer part that like kind of sees what's happening, why am I having this reaction? And so as I've done that, when I react to my kids, I'm like, am I reacting to them or am I reacting to an expectation or experience I've had in my past? And so it's a lot of am I being present in the moment or am I reacting based on the past? So some days I'm better at this than others. Some days I might lose it. But can you describe how maybe we can become more responsive versus reactive in our parenting? Yeah, yeah. I think first off, we need to 
first define what's the difference between responsive and what's reactive parenting, right? And so the best way I like to describe that is using Dan Siegel's hand model. He is the author of The Whole Brain Child. Have you had an opportunity? Oh, I love that book. Dan Siegel's one of my superheroes. Yeah. (laughs) It guides a lot of my parenting. And ironically, I often like I'll be reading a parenting book and a lot of my friends and peers will be like, why are you reading a parenting book? Didn't you go to school to be a parent? And I'm like, I didn't go to school to be a parent. I went to school to be a child life specialist. And I you, I mean, we are constantly learning and evolving, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so back to Dan Siegel and his hand model. So a lot of times how Dan Siegel explains it is the upper part of your hand is the upstairs of your brain, your higher level, your logical reasoning. And then your lower part is your limbic system, which is always assessing the environment for threats and is your fight, flight, and fear response, right? And so when your brain is working all together, and I wish we had a video of this, because as I'm demonstrating, I know, I I know, I almost want to be like, pull out your hands, people, if you're listening, you know, pull out your hands, right? Kind of play around with your hands as you're listening. (laughs) Yes, right. And so if you are pulling at your hand, and you're listening, make a fist and you have your thumb underneath your, your, your hand. And that's your brain working as a whole, right? Your, your limbic system is assessing your environment. Your upper, your upstairs brain is communicating with that limbic system and you're having logic and reasoning. But then when you go into, when you go into reactive parenting, you're oftentimes your upstairs brain is flipped and you flip your lid. And what, and what, and that, in that example is you're literally lifting your hand up and the limbic system is then exposed, right? And so you're reacting not on logic. You're not you're not reacting on higher level of thinking. You're reacting on that snake brain, that fear, flight, pass mm-hmm. out, right? Mm-hmm. And so a lot of times when that happens, we come from a place that we don't we don't recognize, right? We 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 this is a this is a parenting skill that we don't we don't we mm-hmm. it's a day of survival, not a day of thriving, right? And, th- and that's usually how I like to ex- explain that. And so this also can happen with children, right? Children can flip their lids yeah. pretty easily. Yeah. And so what does it look like between parents and children when they flip their lids, especially when they flip their lids at the same right. time? Yeah. And it happens. It happens yeah. a lot. Yeah. Um, and so taking a step back, taking a deep breath, especially as a parent, this is a time when this the village comes in, right? And saying like, if you have somebody there, spouse, I need to tap out. And that, that's what my husband and I, we, we say to each other, time to tap out. And we give each other a high five and we leave the situation. And so we can come back with a cool head. And so for children to be able to connect that upstairs with brain to the downstairs brain, it looks different than adults, right? We want we want it to validate their feelings. And I don't know if you've read the Happiest Toddler on the Block book, but he often says the best food rule where we want to constantly validate their feelings, right? We want to say, Mm -hmm. I hear you're sad. I see you're sad, or I hear you're mad and I see you're mad. And you want to repeat that over and over and over again until they kind of start coming back to that normal behavior, right? Mm -hmm. This is not a time to try to teach them. This is not a time to try to educate them. This is a time to get them out of that snake brain. And one way we can also do that is by asking questions, bring them to a higher level of thinking, right? And then once they're there, let's then resolve the problem. Let's then engage and talk about what we what can do to help them in return. And for adults, when we flip our lids, a lot of times the rule that I like to follow, is like when, when we're in that mode, we hear the first thing you said, the last thing you said, and the worst thing you said. And this isn't the time to try to reason with it either. It's time to take a deep breath, walk away, and, and get cool your head and, re, and recollect yourself. So it's it's going to happen, right? Everybody's going to flip their lid. And that's when you have that reactive parenting. And it's mm-hmm. unfortunate sometimes. We all do it. We're human, right? Yeah. No, everyone reacts from time to time. But yes, I love that hand model. I think it's so helpful. Yes. Um, I wish there was, a, this is when I wish that it wasn't all audio. <laughs> <laughs> I know, I know. Um, you can look up Dan Siegel. He's got a ton of speeches where he shows it. So if you want to go on YouTube, it takes like two minutes and see him. A lot of times he'll be and he'll be like, I have a special, I forget what he says. Like I have special props under your chair. And then he like pulls out his hand <laughs> kind of thing. We didn't really get to talk about responsive parenting. We, that whole time was reactive parenting. So responsive parenting, I felt I feel like actually lines very much into the world of child life, right? In ch- in child life, we are very we 
how we're very different than counselors is that we try to be more proactive in the services that we provide that are retroactive. And with responsive parenting, you're very proactive, right? You're setting a plan. You're providing boundaries and limits and providing choices where choices are possible. And because you set up a plan and you set up these boundaries, then the children know where they, the parameters that they can thus act in. And so like the best example I can pull from is my children themselves, right? And so my son, every morning when he wakes up, he asks mom or dad, what day is today? And what he, what he means by that, is it a school day? Is it a mommy day? Is it a daddy day or family day? And I know that's like a lot of days for him, but because those days he knows what his expectations are of that day and how he should react during those days. Mm-hmm. Um, with dad, what's a daddy day? He's probably going to get a movie. With mommy, he's not going to get a movie. <laughs> <laughs> um, so like he has those expectations and those boundaries set up because of those that responsive parenting that we have. Yeah. Yeah. My That's so interesting. I never thought about that. You just gave me insight. My daughter asked, my, my six-year-old always asked me, what are we going to do tomorrow? And I'm always like, what do you mean? You're going to school? Like, I'm always, I never have put that into, oh, she's testing for expectations. So you just gave me some some growth area there. Yeah, thank you. That would be helpful because now I know I'll just have to think, okay, tomorrow's a weekend or, and we can do more fun things or tomorrow's a school day. So you're going to go to school and we'll have our regular routine. So that'll be really helpful. So there's a book that you reminded me of. I, can't remember if it's, I think it's a Siegel book, but a really old one. It's called Parenting from the Inside Out. Have you heard of it? I haven't. Tell me more. So Parenting from the Inside It's either Gottman or Siegel. I've, those two both I have books from. But it's all about reactive, like why we're reactive parents. It's all about self-examination, right? And so they tell these great stories because I always think about how we have reactivity based on those fear responses like you talked about earlier, right? And a lot of that is stuff that was put into our system as rules when we were growing up, right? And so like, for example, trying to think of a good one, we're going into a grocery store and our kids having a tantrum. And when we were a kid growing up, our parents would spank us or, you know, shame us or whatever. Like we had a very bad negative experience around tantrum. And so you take your child into the store and your child starts having a tantrum and you have this experience of being really negatively treated, right, as a kid when you had a tantrum. So that reactivity happens that like, this is bad. This is not allowed to happen. Kids aren't allowed to do that, right? That's the rule in your head. And so you react to that and you're, you parent in a way that may be not in line with what you had planned on doing, right? So that would be the reactive parenting versus responsive parenting would be like, okay, I'm recognizing this was something that happened to me that I'm feeling anxious around this and I'm going to recognize that I'm going to breathe and I'm going to make a choice based on how I want to parent today. Yes. 100%. Right. And so, yeah, so that's what that parenting from the inside out book. I love that book. Cause it just, we pass things down like that modeling. Like when you talk about the hand, you know, I almost, the child's hand is smaller than the adult's hand, right? Because the frontal lobe, that thinking part of the brain isn't fully developed yet. Mm-hmm. Whereas ours is right. So we have more ability to access when we flip our lid. It might look bigger and scarier, but also we have more connections here. And so we can model that. We're going to help this little hand grow into this big hand that can make connections. I love that example so those of are little hand and big hand. It's, it's great. You're, you're totally right. 100%. Yeah, I love metaphors. I have a <laughs> metaphor addiction, I guess. <laughs> I mean, it just it, it helps people learn that way, right? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And, I agree. And, and you're and you're yeah. right, though. I think with attachment parenting too, we come from this culture of children are sometimes seen and not heard. But with attachment parenting styles, we are very much that my children are seen and my children are heard. But you're right; our history affects that. And so sometimes, like, why do I feel embarrassed right now that my child is having a hissy fit in the store? Because this is natural. This is okay. Like, it's okay that he is being heard or she is being heard right now. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, and, and having that self-awareness and that self-assessment. Yeah, a hundred percent. Their lids flip. So, you know, and I also think something else that I tell my clients a lot, most stuff that we apply to kids, I feel like applies to adults, like marital stuff. I do a lot of couples work. Validation is important there too. If you aren't hearing, if people aren't being heard, it's communication stops, right? Like you can't talk at somebody and expect them to get it. You have to talk with somebody. So yeah. And then the other thought I had when you were talking about reactive versus responsive, that's been really hard for me because I am a 
I like to do everything. Like I like to be involved in everything. I'm the person who's like, oh, we need volunteers for this. And I'm at my child's PTA meeting and I'm working a full-time job and I have another child and all these other things. And they're like, we need a volunteer. And I'm like, me, I'll do it. You know, and I like to volunteer for everything. So I'm like, my mode of being is very fast paced. My mode of being is like, what's next? What's next? What's next? What's next? And when you're doing that, it's really hard to be responsive. You don't have time to stop and think. You're not doing that. You're in just an impulsive mode. And so the other piece of that is creating margin, creating room that we can slow down so that we do have time to recognize a reaction versus a response. So those are my little tidbits to add to what you were saying, but I love that. And I would love to add to that too, um, that my, my parents, so my parents were, and we, you know, we learned from our generations or that village, right? And so my parents were actually foster parents for many years and they had to take a parenting class to be foster parents. And the one thing, the one advice that they got out of it was at the end of the day, leave 30 minutes for yourself or for you and your spouse, right? And at that 30 minutes, you reconnect with your spouse, you reconnect with yourself, you fill your bucket back up so that you can be a present parent so that you can be a responsive parent and so that you can keep achieving those goals every day. And it's advice that, that I do to this day, my husband and I, the kids go down, we sit down for 30 minutes, we share cookies and we talk, we mm-hmm. digest the day and we prepare for the next day and just reconnect as a couple. Yeah. Oh, I love that. That's beautiful. That's amazing that they were saying, I feel like that's a newer putting, making time for your marriage and yourself is a newer concept. So that's amazing that they were telling your parents that. Yeah. And they, um, they did it until I graduated high school. They're like, you have to go to bed at nine because we need 30 minutes to each other. <laughs> yes. <laughs> oh my gosh. Fantastic. No. And it's so hard to get that these days. I feel like, it is. Um, so that's amazing. Yeah. When I was in grad school, one of our professors did research on the type of therapy I do, which is emotionally focused couples therapy with um, families of children with special needs. And that was something that came up a lot was that their relationship got put on a shelf. They never made time for it, right? It was all about caring for what's the next thing I need to do for my special needs child. And so they're, while they're doing all this amazing committed work for their child, they're losing each other in the process. And so that making time to slow down and, and losing themselves too, right? You lose yourself a little bit in this, Your identity. right? Yeah. Yeah. And so I love that making time. That's great. I hope you guys all out there take, if nothing else, take that 30 minute margin. 30 minutes and share cookies if you can. (laughs) Yes, cookies. So like I said earlier about the promotions and the development stuff, our children's needs and desires are constantly changing and their understanding of how and who to relate to changes with them. How do you help families facilitate this growth across different ages, especially when you're working with their understanding around an illness, right? Because when I studied grief in grad school, what I really took home was like an eight-year-old and a four-year-old are going to completely understand what happened very differently, right? As we as we grow, we almost re-grieve constantly because we're learning, we're understanding things from a newer, more advanced perspective. And so I wondered how you do that. How do you facilitate that growth? How do you prepare people for those changes? Yeah, 100%. So a lot of times when we have parents come to us, they're going to act, they're going to, we're going to, we're going to do an intake, right? And we're going to learn a lot about every child that they have. And most of the time, they're actually going to start with the oldest child and they're going to work their way down and thinking that the youngest child isn't being impacted by this, especially that infancy age and that toddler age, they're not being impacted. But in reality, they're being probably the most impacted because they're feeding off all the family changes and the feelings that are going on. And so providing that education, especially for that younger age group is so important. And so for that infancy age age group to that taller age group, right? We want to talk about providing that secure base, that secure home. And, and so what, and what does that look like, right? Meeting those, those, those needs, those physical, those emotional needs as quickly as possible, being responsive in your, your parenting. And when you do have an ill parent that can't be as responsive and you have a healthy parent that is being more of a caretaker to that ill parent, how can you rely on that village? How can you bring in other people to help you support those little ones, right? And then- and then you're right, right? In terms of they're constantly growing, they're constantly reevaluating, and they're constantly going through that grief over again or reliving, like looking back from when mom did have cancer when she was three 
and saying like, oh, my kid brain, it looked like this, but in my older brain, now I really know what happened, right? Um, so yeah. that constant reassessing is it is happening, right? And so leaving that door open for communication is so important. And a lot of times we we encourage parents to provide information in bite-sized bits of pieces, right? We don't want to overwhelm them. We don't want them to go off and feel like I, I don't know what what was just provided to me, but we want to provide bite-sized pieces and allow this door to, for them to come back and ask questions and reassess throughout their growth and throughout the, the time of the illness. Yeah. Uh, that actually brought a point. That's a later question, but I'm going to come back to it anyways, or I'm going to bring it in now anyways, but that making it safe, I was thinking about how when kids are very egocentric, they can think things are their fault. They can think that they're the reason their mom's sick. They can think they're the reason the parent left. They can think they had prayed harder, done something better, that somehow mom and dad would have been okay, mom and dad would have stayed, whatever the case may be. And so ha- that's a really vulnerable, scary feeling when they are able to like really put words to it. How do we create that? How do we create a relationship where our kids feel safe to come to us no matter what and talk to us about what they're feeling, even if it's shameful, even if it's scary, even if there might be a consequence that we have to implement related to that? How do we make it safe like that? And so you're, you're right, though, in the world of child life, we call it magical thinking, where we mm-hmm. I hit my brother, and now my mom has cancer. And so mm-hmm. that, that is why in Wonders and Worries, it's so important in session two that we provide that diagnosis education. Mm-hmm. And I actually recently had a client that think that gummy bears caused his dad's stomach cancer. Um, and so mm-hmm. a lot of education needed to go around that because he was afraid of gummy bears. He didn't want to eat gummy bears again. And so a lot of education had to go around that. But back to your original question of how do we create this secure base and the secure relationship that our children want to come back to us, even if there might be a punishment, even if they might get in trouble with it, right? And that goes back to, again, that infancy, creating that secure base, responding to their needs, both physically and emotionally. And that emotional component is what we kind of already talked about is just constantly validating their feelings and hearing what they're saying and stopping what you're doing when they're asking for your attention, right? And making them feel like a priority. And the biggest thing that, that I always, the advice I always like to give to parents is that a lot of times for whatever reason, especially the little ones, when you're on the phone, you are the most interesting person in the room. Why is that? I do not know. (laughs) Um, But the most powerful thing you can do as a parent is to tell the other adults on the line and say, can you hold for 30 seconds while I answer X, Y, and Z for my child. And so you are saying that you are important, you are a priority, and I hear you and see you. And so when you they do get in trouble, when they do things that they shouldn't have done, they know they can come to you and that they will be heard. Their side of the story will be heard and it will get resolved because they know you're a safe face. I hope that answers your yeah. question. Yeah, no, that was great. I think for those listening that don't know what a safe face is, could you talk a little bit about just attachment and the different types and how we un- recognize a secure base? Yeah, yeah. Sorry, I didn't go into greater detail with that. So yeah, so with That's attachment okay. theory, you have a different types of attachment. You have secure attachment and insecure attachment. And secure attachment is when the parent is responsive to their needs. Like we talked about, you you respond quickly and you, you make sure that the child feels comforted and loved. And then you have the insecure where like we talked about too, where sometimes maybe the parent's history or the parent's own mental health doesn't allow them to always be as responsive and it doesn't allow them to always provide the needs that the child, meet the needs the child might have, right? And so then if it's an insecure attachment, then the child doesn't necessarily go to the parent when when they are have a fear response or they are stressed out. They don't necessarily think of their parent right away versus a secure relationship they're going to, the first thing they're going to think of is their parents and go to their parents when they're in a a sense of fear and a sense of need. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's a good explanation. And, and then I would add that, um, for a secure attachment, that child, even if they did hit their brother or broke something, they're going to come to you and know that they're not going to receive shame, that there's, you're still going to see them as the same person. You're still going to love them the same. You're, you're going to know it was an accident or you're going to know, that it was a reaction, but you're not going to make it. This is now who you are as a person and I'm rejecting you in some type of emotional way. Yeah, it's that safety. And then you said something about screens, which screens is like a huge talking point for me. 
because I've already talked about it once, but no, I do a speaker series and one of my favorite presentations that I do is about the effect of screens on us. And because, you know, we've had to adapt, right, to read people who's safe people, who's not safe people. Screens, we never learned how to read like that, but screens are becoming more able to, well, what they're really doing is they're vying for our attention, right? Everything's a business. Everyone wants our time and our money. And so screens are finding out ways to do that. And so recognizing that allows us to say, okay, this screen is vying for my attention, but my child needs my attention. And so being able to put down the phone at times, have you ever seen the still face study? Yes. Oh my gosh. So there's a video online from it of the mom doing the still face study. Oh my gosh. It makes me cry every time. It just kills me. I'm like, oh my gosh, look at your baby. And it's like for four seconds, right? It's amazing how much distress we feel seeing that. But that's what I think of with screens is like our children are seeing us on our phone and they're like, we've disconnected. We're now have this other thing pulling at our attention. And so I wonder if that's why they're magnetized to the parent on the screen. They really need to get that connection back. But showing kids that they're more important than a phone, like really that's an awareness piece. And that's why I talk about a lot when I talk about screens is like you have to really be aware right now because the screens are designed in ways that are meant to pull your attention are meant to get you like mindlessly scrolling and mindlessly checking, you know, and creating those habits. And so really being aware, really being able to slow down and say, okay, my child needs me right now. My child's present and I can take time to be present with them. Or if you can't, that is a sign that you were burnt out, that you like need a break in general, and the screen is not going to give you that break. And so putting down the screen, but also calling in your village, like we said, and getting that break, getting that need met to take care of yourself as well. Yeah, I think the biggest gift a parent can give to their child is time, right? Mm-hmm. And a lot of times we try to provide education to parents on how you can do that, right? We, Like you said earlier, we feel pulled in 800 directions all the time. And so mm-hmm. during the week, we often like to say, provide check-in times, right? And so like if your child is requesting time for you, telling yourself that dishes can wait, I can play with my child for 10 minutes and fill their mm-hmm. bucket so they go off and play independently for 30 minutes, right? Yeah. And then we also encourage 30-minute undivided play session times once a week with your children, right? And it looks different for different age ranges. But during that time, the phone is turned off, the TVs are turned off, and it's child-led play. And child-led play is where the child gets to pick what what, what is played with. The child gets to pick the the boundaries. But yes, during that time, you have your your parent boundaries, as in this is going to be for 30 minutes. We cannot hurt ourselves or other people. But this is dedicated time just for you. And the the parent follows the lead of the child and validates that child's feelings and reflects on how they're playing. And it's so, again, it makes them feel like this very important person in the family. And they are an important person in that family. Yeah, yeah. And it sets the stage for, well, first of all, that's what we use in play therapy, right? Like when I'm trying to understand what's going on with a child, like, probably doesn't know even cognitively how to express it, we use play. Kids talk through play. That's how they express things. But it also reminds me of a, I can't remember who said this quote, but if you don't, um, if you, what is it? Something along the lines of like, if you don't act like the little things are important, they're not going to come to you with the big things. Uh-huh. Right? Yeah. And so even though for you, a silly story about going across the monkey bars or whatever at school, you know, isn't that big of a deal and you're distracted with work and you're super stressed to that child. That was their world that day, right? They're giving you like a glimpse into this was a really big, important moment for me going across the monkey bars, Mm -hmm. you know, or if they're having a big negative feeling and it feels like it's over something silly, same thing. Like it's big to them. Those little feelings are big to them, especially because that top part of their brain is not developed. So they work a lot off emotion and relational um, skills. That's that limbic part of the system. That's what happens there. And so, yeah, so really giving them opportunities to feel important and to know that you are going to turn to them when they need you. Yes. 
Yeah. And that actually reminds me of Charlie's Bushes working in the hospital setting. And so a lot of times when a child has to have a blood draw or has to get a vaccination, they might, you know, build it up in their heads and it might be a difficult coping time for them. And so once it's all said and done, a lot of times we have to educate our medical staff to not say, see, it wasn't a big deal. See, it was, it was just a tiny poke because you're devaluing that for them. That was really challenging for them. That might have been the hardest thing they had to do that day, that week, that year, right? And so mm-hmm. how do you bolster them and saying like, you worked really hard to, you know, to hold your body still. And I saw that that was hard for you, but mm-hmm. you did X, Y, and Z to make it easier. And I'm proud of you, right? And so, yes. and you're, you're right. In the hospital setting, it's a lot of times educating that medical staff to, to not devalue those little voices and those little brains. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, That all, that reminds me of, so there's a book, there's two books that are like my go-to books for everything. Then I'm like, everyone has to read these two books to know, to just, it's going to change your life. One of them is the new one by Bruce Perry and Oprah Winfrey. What happened to you? Have you heard of that book? The trauma book? Oh my gosh, it's fantastic. It's all about stress response and brain development and trauma. My trigger warning is always that Bruce Perry has spent his entire life working with horrible, horrible traumatic abuse cases. And so he does talk about some very triggering child traumas, but it helps you develop so much insight, understanding on how your life has impacted you and impacted your choices. The other one that you just reminded me of is Mindset by Carol Dweck. Have you heard of that one? Okay. (laughs) So Carol Dweck is a Stanford researcher and professor, and she studies growth versus fixed mindset. And what you just said, that's the growth mindset, right? Like I'm sitting here listening to you and I was like, but you have to let the kid know, like when you're not devaluating them and you're like, you had to sit really still, that was really hard. And you did X, Y, Z, the X, Y, Z is so important because it's like, there is something that you learned to do during this moment that helped you. And it lets them know that they can learn new skills to get through really hard things versus fixed being like, you're so brave. Well, then I'm either brave or not brave, right? We don't want dichotomies for kids. But yeah, that's what the mindset's all about is like, mentioning to kids like how hard they worked, but also what it is they did to do that hard work. What did they do to accomplish that thing? Because you're teaching them that there are tools and that they can learn tools. So anyways, that's just like such a big takeaway for me. But I love that you're teaching people, doctors to do that because I think it's so valuable, so helpful. Like I said, it's my number two go-to book for everybody. So yeah. I mean, the human brain isn't done developing until 25 or 30, right? And so how can we encourage that constant growth of coping and how can we encourage new skill sets so that you don't have that fixed brain and so that you do have that growth mindset? Yeah. Yeah. And it's still developed, right? Like our neurons, our neural pathways are rewriting themselves every day. Like that's another thing that happens in that mindset book is like, you never stop learning. Like as long as you have a growth mindset, there's no, you don't teach old dogs, new tricks. Like people can change. I had people in grad school with me coming from all kinds of fields to be therapists in their fifties. Okay. You can learn a new skill. You can, you can make changes and you can, you know, this is a lifelong process. As long as you recognize the ability to create, to adapt new tools and make changes and be flexible. Like we're not just who we are, we're, we're who we want to be in the future. And we're working towards that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And every experience shapes that right. Positive or negative. Yes. Every moment. Yeah. A hundred percent. So let's think about the future, the big picture overall, what do you think is the most important thing for us as parents to know and understand developing a healthy relationship with each child that we have? Yeah, so I think the each child part is the the biggest takeaway there, right? And that is kind of what you said earlier, right? I see you for who you are and that and the actions you take don't waver my love for you, right? Mm-hmm. So I think that is the most important takeaway is meeting each child where they're at. And again, I'm gonna pull from my own children because they're here all the time, right? But my my daughter, she is easygoing, very resilient, bounces that quickly, right? And then there's my son who's more sensitive, not as resilient, needs more encouragement to get to do those different things. And so and so meeting them where they're where they're at and how they approach different things. So just yesterday with the climbing up a rock wall at the at the playground, my daughter ran to it, head up, was all the way up and then went into panic mode. <laughs> and having to like coach her and guide her. And then my son 
cautiously walking up to it and coaching and guiding him all the way up to it and 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 then appraising them when it was all done and validating that 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 was hard for them but I'm so proud of you for trying something new and and mm-hmm. and redoing it and seeing that and, and encouraging them to keep doing it until they mastered it and then that feeling of yeah. mastery is so important but approaching yes. them all differently based on their personalities is so important yes yes and recognizing um, I see a lot of parents get frustrated that they're raising these kids the same way and in the same family with the same people. And I'm like, but you're not right. A second child has this ch- another child in the picture that nobody had when the first child was around. Right. And as we add the system dynamics change and the way we respond changes because our bandwidth changes and where we are in life changes and our neural pathways change what we understand, what we know, everything changes. No child's born in the same family. And so recognizing that, too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I mean, I, ironically, I was just talking to this about with my own mother. Um, we're actually all my mom, and my sister and I are actually going on a trip pretty soon. And I was like, this is going to be interesting. Fun. I'm type B personality. My sister's type A personality. My mom kind of falls right in the middle. <laughs> and so like how are even as adults, how are we all going to mesh as a family? <laughs> That's so interesting. Is your sister the oldest or the youngest? She is seven years older than me. So she's ah. always kind of being my second mom, always kind okay. of, you know, looking out for me and doing those different things for, for me. So our dynamics always been kind of a little bit different. Yeah. Okay, cool. And then your mom kind of sounds like she's been like the middle, the middle person. Always has been always between my sister and I always kind of been that she, we, she, she very much that mother that like hears you, right? She's no matter where she's at, what she's doing, she's going to answer that phone call from you. So she's always mm-hmm. created that very much loving atmosphere. And so, I mean, when we were younger, I could call my mom and be like, my sister hit me. <laughs> she's like, she's babysitting you. <laughs> you know, like, uh, but she, no matter what, even if she's at a business meeting, she would answer the phone call. So at a very, lovely. very loving childhood. Oh, wonderful. And where are you guys going? Costa Rica. Oh, that's going to be so fun. Yes, I've never yes. been, but it so looks my beautiful. my 60th birthday and her retirement celebration. So that's why it's just us three girls going, which has been interesting with COVID, filling out all the paperwork and getting that all figured out. But it's the first time mm-hmm. that all three of us have ever taken a trip together. So oh, that's so cool. Very excited about it. Yeah, my, my dad my dad passed away when I was 20. Oh, and sorry. so it's just been the three of us for a while now. So we're yeah. looking forward to it. Very cool. Very cool. I hope you'll have fun. You know what? You were just talking about your mom and how she'll always answer the phone. And I was thinking, okay, so secure, secure attachment right there. And you mentioned grief because losing your father when at a time when most people don't expect to lose a parent. So how does having a secure attachment impact our children? How does it help them in managing trauma and grief? And how do we create this security? And I think we've talked a lot about creating the security, but how it helps us maybe could be helpful too. Yeah. So like you said, we kind of already talked about a lot of how we create that security with, you know, responding to our children's needs. But when we establish that baseline, our children know that we are a safe person to come to when they are in a moment of stress and when they are in a moment of grief. And so, and they know that when they come to us, that our feelings will be heard, our feelings will be validated. And, it, you know, that and it, you can come up with a system of like, is this a time that you want advice or is this a time that you just want to vent, right? And having that open conversation with your child. But also, you know, showing them raw emotions um, and, th- and showing that your children, it's okay to be sad. It's okay to be angry. And so like when my dad did pass, like me, my mom and my sister, we cried together a lot. And it was my mom role model that it was okay to cry together. It was okay to be sad together. But, mm-hmm. and, but then just always just hearing her side of losing a husband, but then also losing my side of losing a a dad. And just to this day, like just bringing him up and having an open conversation about him is very therapeutic and very healing for both Mm -hmm. my mom and I. Yeah, that's beautiful. I love hearing that. I find a lot of times when I deal with um, grief like that, that it's almost like a competition of grief. Like there's not room for your grief because my grief is so big. And it sounds like in your case, with that secure attachment that we're talking about, that there was room for everyone's grief. Everyone got to have their grief and and experience it. Yeah. And I think it was, a, it was very different for my sister, too. She had a newborn at the time, um, oh, my wow. oldest niece. And so her grief journey was a lot different than my mom's and I. So she didn't have that time to grieve. And so mm-hmm. as years have passed... As we talked about, even with children, it happens with adults. And now that she's in an older stage and her children are grown up, now she can sit down and reevaluate that grief and talk about that grief in a different way. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. 
Yeah. But that's awesome that you're able to provide that for a lot of people just move on past it and never go back so that she's able to, I mean, it's always there, right? If we don't process it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, thank you for sharing that. I know that was a really vulnerable piece to share. I wanted to talk about, I don't have a question here. Actually, I thought I did about the village. So we were talking about the village and I give so many, I mean, my little go-to speech, I've probably said this in the podcast before too, is we're built for connection, right? Like the entire living world is built for connection, right? Trees, the reason trees grow together is so they can protect each other, right? Their roots help maintain each other's roots. The trees help block each other from the wind. It lessens the impact of things. Our cells don't survive without other cells. Neurons have to connect to other neurons or else we prune them away or, you know, they wither away from not being used. Everything is about connection. And we're, I feel like as a society, maybe we're moving more back towards this, but for a long time, we have been moving away from villages. We've been moving away from it's okay to ask for help. It's okay to not be able to do it all yourself. And for a long time, I think people felt like they had to do it all themselves. And I think we saw a lot of really difficult outcomes from that, right? Like estranged parent-child relationships and strained marriages and divorces and just a lot of really painful things and and moms feeling like they just can't do it, right? And so talking about that village and how to find it and how to be willing to ask for help. I always tell people asking for help is not just somebody asking somebody to give you a gift. It's giving them a gift. It's giving them a gift that you trust them. You feel like they're reliable. You feel like they're dependable and that they are somebody that you trust. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I think in the community of wonders and worries with that, having a parent, of, uh, having an ill parent, we do offer a parenting class, but following the parenting class, there's a parent support group, right? And so having that village to be like, you know what? Yeah, that happened to me last week. And that's how, this is how we dealt with it. it makes you not feel isolated. And it does, you don't feel alone in your journey and you can brainstorm mm-hmm. and come up with ideas. I mean, villages can come in all different forms and fashions of physical help of bringing dinner and that emotional support of like, I hear mm-hmm. what you're going through. We just did that a couple of weeks ago. And yeah. it's, it's, and you're right. We're, we're pack animals. We're herd animals and we should be next to each other. And I think that the women's rights movement definitely, I think, aided into that. We must do it all our own. We must be working moms. We, we can we can be super moms. We can have it all. it all. Yeah. We can have it all. And you can, but you need help. Right. Yeah. 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 Like nothing thrives in isolation. There's very little things that thrive in isolation. Yeah. And I, I think I think the COVID has not helped with that movement no. of village. Um, yes. And it's, that is, it's concerning what the outcomes of that will look like, especially yeah. for young children. Yeah, I agree. Something that was really important to my husband and I when the lockdowns and everything started was having a pod. I think pods started to be talked about a lot. So we had people that, you know, we only hung out with each other, but like we were still so supporting each other, you know. But I did. I mean, even I lost some of my support because they one of my good friends lives a little further away and had a different pod right and so we weren't interacting with each other and she used to be my go-to like if I I remember because she's been a mom longer than me and when uh, my husband would go out of town for work and I'd be alone with my I guess she was three and I was pregnant and we were having a really hard time and I was like oh my gosh I cannot do this I'm about to break that I would call her and she would I mean it was like nine o'clock at night my child wouldn't go to bed and I was she would rush over and help me and so yeah, even even with the pods, I lost people that not lost them. They're back. They're coming back. But and we still talked, but lost that ability to like get that direct help and run over to each other's houses whenever we wanted to mm-hmm. or needed to. Yeah, yeah, that sense of isolation definitely increased during during COVID, especially for parents. Um, yeah. and, I, and I have to I have to make I mean I think more so on working moms too of like having to alter their jobs and quit their jobs so they could handle the schooling from home and um, losing mm-hmm. that sense of identity a little bit for, for parents um, during this time. 100 was definitely impacted them. Yeah. Yeah. It's been hard. It's definitely been hard, but I hope, I hope people's villages are coming back. I've seen that villages are coming back. We're kind of coming out of it a little bit. And so, but I do want to encourage people like reach out. I promise you it's not a sign of weakness and you're not burdening people. I don't know where those ideas came from, but 
we need to get rid of them. (laughs) Right. I mean, I love when somebody reaches out to me personally, like you reach out to me and you ask me for help. I love being the hero. I love being the person that can step in. And I love that sense of having somebody that I'm that close to that they can tell me when they're struggling. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I think we've covered just about everything, but I wanted to end. I've, I'm trying to implement at ending with some tangible takeaways, which I feel like actually you're really good at putting tangible takeaways throughout this. I feel like there's been some really good pieces that people could be like, oh, there's a tool right there that I can just implement right away. But let's just end on three tangible things that we as parents can do regularly to help maintain a healthy relationship with our kids. Yeah. So I think that, again, that key takeaway is tangible. And so I think the First and foremost thing that any tangible thing that a parent can do is having a solid established bedtime routine and not even for the little ones that goes all the way into early adulthood, right? So mm-hmm. the little ones, it's, it's, I mean, everybody's heard the saying of, uh, you know, bath, books, and bed, right? And so that physical act of washing your child and showing the love for them in the bathtub and then that physical act of cuddling on in a chair in the bed and reading a book and sharing the same interest you're just showing the love for them and that snuggle at the end of the day when you say you just sing their songs or whatever your routine might be is so important for them in that sense of safety and security and more so that those boundaries and predictability right we know that setting a bedtime routine establishes that this is these are your boundaries these are the behaviors that are expected of you and you know here's the pre-planned consequences if you don't meet those behaviors right and I think that the next thing is established dinner routine right we all hear like how important it is to sit down at the end of the day as a family and have dinner together but again that tangibleness uh, providing physical food for your your children shows that you care about their physical needs. Mm-hmm. You want to nourish them, but then also sitting down and providing that emotional nourishment of saying like, how can I support you at the end of the day? How was your day? What was your high? What was your low? Like, let's talk about this and let's mm-hmm. be part of the family communication, right? Yeah. I think the third thing, and this might just be from me and my current parenting styles, but establishing a morning routine. You hear a lot about ending your day, but what about starting your day, right? And that physical, tangible starting your day of, you know, giving a hug, a kiss, a high five, whatever your comfort level is with your child, giving that physical contact at the end of the day. And then also with a mantra. And so when I drop my kids off at school for Mother's Day out, there is a little mantra that I give to them that, and I started because my daughter was adoptive, but it just kind of fell for every, you know, for everybody in the household of you are loved, you are safe, and you are wanted every day to start them off on a positive note, right? Um, oh my gosh, that's so beautiful. That gave me chills. <laughs> like I can't imagine being a child and hearing that every day. That's wonderful. Every day. Yeah. And so just, yeah. you know, you know, knowing that they are important and they are supported. And I and I'm trying to remember the quote and the statistics behind it, but it's like we need 12 hugs a day to thrive. We get six mm-hmm. to survive. You know, we need that physical touch. We mm-hmm. you said, like you said, back to that field. connection. Yes, we need that yeah. physical touch and children need it more than anything else. And you know, mm-hmm. frankly, if I was being honest, I need it just as much as they do. Right? Yeah. <laughs> yes. Oh, I fear that day that my kids get old enough that they're like, no, don't kiss me. No, don't hug me because I'm so like all over them all the time, you know? Yeah. And like I said, back to that bedtime routine that it's even carried into early adulthood of, you know, you're not doing bath bath books in bed with them, but maybe you sit in their bed or you, you sit there and you just digest their day. Right. And you talk to them and snuggle on the bed and just Mm -hmm. know that like, this is how I end my day. No matter what mom tucks me in that physical act of tucking me in, even if you're 18, Mm -hmm. you're you're getting tucked in (laughs) Yeah, until you leave this house. (laughs) Yeah. I love that. I think there's a sense of security there. I'm sure some people might hear that and think that's silly, but like they're about to go out in the world and be adults. And it's really scary. And having that something Yeah, having that something to depend on, like, I know that I have this, and if things get hard, I can always come back to this. I can always come back to this bedtime routine with mom, or like when I'm away at college, I can call her at night and digest our days together. Like, you're setting that precedent up. And then the the dinner table thing. You know, my husband, when I, when I will introduce things like, let's go around and say, what's your favorite thing about today? What was, how did you help someone today? You know, sometimes I get, 
not an eye roll, but like that sense of an eye roll. You uh-huh. know what I mean? Like the, uh-huh, okay, Tracy, therapy lady. Yep. yep, yep. But the kids love it. Like my six-year-old loves, how did I help someone today? What was the best thing that happened today? What was the hardest thing that I had to overcome today? You know, and it also pulls us away. I think people have forgotten how to have conversations at tables. And it's a skill our kids are going to need to be successful in the future. I really believe that. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, it teaches them to engage each other, to be present and have conversation and not be stuck to not the, when was it? I guess in the sixties is when they started having the TV dinners. So we started moving away from conversation and more to having screens when we ate, but re-engaging in that, re-engaging in that. And for us too, remembering that like we can connect with people over dinner. It doesn't have to be, we don't all have to go to the restaurant with our phones in our hands, you know? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I actually have a, a girlfriend. She tries to switch up like, you know, the, the highs, the lows and everything like that and tries to make them into a game. Sometimes she's like, okay, what's two truths and a lie from your day? Uh, oh, I love so, that. Yeah. And so just kind of switching it up and making it fun. And so that's not the same thing um, right now mm-hmm. for our kids at the end of the day, they race to see who can say it first. How was your day? <laughs> it's a big <laughs> race. So who cute. can say it first? <laughs> yeah. No, but it's oh, important. Right. And I think you bring up that this screen time, right. It's that we got to limited and it's so important, especially for that teenage years that we limit screen time that we have a time where the phone needs to be turned in at the end of the day to the parent or just put in the kitchen time Mm -hmm. to unplug time for that family core value of family game night or, Mm -hmm. you know, hikes as a family outside reconnecting and reestablishing that relationship, especially before they go off in college and have to figure out who they are as an adult. Yeah. And especially I want to say when they're kids, like when they're in elementary school ages or preschool ages, they they love family time with no screens, right? They love being able to get on the floor and do a puzzle or play a game and so much learning. And, and so establishing that then, like making that time, I think is so valuable. And also, I think a lot of kids are lonely. You know, I hear a lot about loneliness and social anxiety because kids just are losing the skill of connection. Mm-hmm. And so we're giving it back to them by creating opportunities for them to learn how to connect beyond the screen. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now I, I had a conversation with somebody and she's like, my car, when we drive is never quiet. Cause there's no, there's no <laughs> phones allowed. There's no TV allowed. And she's like, sometimes I wish she was quiet. Sometimes I could have a moment to breathe, but no, it's like, mom, why is that over there? Mom, what's going on over there? Mom, did you see that police car? <laughs> yes. I'm also trying to drive. <laughs> yes. Oh, and think about how good that is as a survival skill, that awareness. Like I'm aware of the world around me. I'm not going to walk into, this is mean, but there was a YouTube video that went up. I hate when people do this, honestly. So I probably shouldn't even bring this up, but like staring at their phone, they walk into the fountain at the mall. Yes. Have you seen this? Yes. You know, it's like, be, you have to be aware, but there's dangerous things out there. And if we're all walking around staring at our phone, like we're setting ourselves up to like, encounter some dangerous things and not have any skills to like protect ourselves. Mm-hmm. But I agree. Yeah. Yes. No, I'm a big advocate on limited screen time and just that yeah. family connection, um, but family game night. I mean, some of my fondest memories as a kid growing up are family game nights. Like my my yeah. mom, like refusing to play Monopoly with my dad for like a year. <laughs> 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 no, I think it's, it's, yeah. it's important. It's very important. hundred percent. Yes. Mm-hmm. Very. And all, I have so many good memories of it too. Of just, being together and playing games and creating games. Um, my dad, I remember we had a pool growing up. My dad created pool baseball. And so there'd be floating bases and it was so fun. And it's such a fond memory of mine. And it wasn't about watching a movie and it wasn't about, you know, not that there's not place for those like movie nights are great. Yeah. But I don't know that engagement, that connection, that like, this is my family feeling is so valuable. I think. And what you learn through play, right? Taking turns and sharing and team mm-hmm. team involvement and collaboration. What you learn mm-hmm. through those those interactions. Yeah, sportsmanship. How to lose. Yeah. 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 How to lose with grace. Like how to be like, I lost today. Maybe I'll win tomorrow. But that's not the point. The point is we had fun. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. My, my right. kids' favorite. And so we, you know, we do allow movies. We have Friday night pizza movie night and their favorite movie mm-hmm. for the longest time was cars. And so they would pretend that they were cars and racing around the living room like that. And they would take turns winning. Um, but every time yeah. they would win, it was with grace though. And they could be like, I am the champion. But then like, <laughs> it'd be like, but also high five. <laughs> <laughs> 
good work, good effort. <laughs> yeah. So it's, you know, yeah. you, you, you learn, you learn through a lot through those family interactions. Yeah. yeah. So that's why those relationships are important. That's why I'm so thankful you were able to come on here today and chat with me about it. Well, thank you so much. I think we've covered, gosh, we covered a lot of ground in an hour. <laughs> I hope so. so yes. <laughs> thank you. You were wonderful. Yes, absolutely. I think wonderful. I love how you're able to present such digestible, digestible ways of understanding development and relationships is beautiful. And the work you do is beautiful, you know, and you got, you guys are a nonprofit, right? They are a nonprofit. Yes. yes. Yeah. Yeah. So wonders and worries guys, if <laughs> you know, you need a somebody to support wonders and worries is doing some amazing things. And we aren't just in Houston. We're also in Austin and San Antonio. So okay. hopefully expanding from there. Yeah. Wonderful. I love that, that y'all are growing like that. Cause that's such a huge need. I feel like that's such a valuable uh, service that you're offering. Yeah. So it's, it's like I said, Meredith, our co-founder, she had a vision and it's, I mean, I think it's done wonders for a lot of families and impacted my life greatly too, to be able to be a part of it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you so much. You know, great. Yes. Agreed. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode and would like to help us reach more listeners, please share it with someone you know, post about it on social media, and leave a rating or review. To see what's coming next, follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Nick Finn Council, or visit our website at finnegancounseling.org. Before I go, I'd also like to thank the people who made this project possible our wonderful experts who joined me for each episode, our production team at Three Wire Creative, our editor and production assistant, Giselle Dixon, and the amazing leadership team and supporters at Nick Finnegan Counseling Center in Houston, Texas. Until next time.